Well, praise the Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. So grateful to be here this morning to sing praises to his holy name, to worship his name. Let's continue our worship now as we turn to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 9. For the past year, we've been in the book of Genesis. We made our way from verse chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 9, verse 1. And so... We're going to read through verse 7 today. If you'd please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Hope you all had a wonderful time with family this week. Now it's time to be fed with the inerrant, inspired, infallible word of God. This is God's word. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. And the fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. As with the green plant, I give all to you. However, flesh with its life, that is, its blood, you shall not eat. Surely I will require your lifeblood from everything I will, from every living thing I will require it. And from every man, from each man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. As for you, be fruitful and multiply. Swarm on the earth and multiply in it. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Uh, if you were with us last week, <clears throat> you'll remember with, uh, we left off with Noah offering a sacrifice of thanksgiving to Yahweh for providentially delivering them from the great flood of Genesis chapter 7. And the Lord God Almighty said him, saying to himself, while all the days of the earth remain, seed time and hard harvest, cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. These things will not cease. And here we all are still enjoying the benefits of that promise. But I'll confess, most of the time that I read chapter 8, I find myself scratching my head a bit. Almost every time I read the closing words of the 8th chapter, as well as the ones directly above them, I think to myself, wait a minute, what just happened here? Uh, look at verse 21. Uh, look for yourselves. Yahweh said, I will never again curse the ground because of men. I won't do it again. He even says, I will never again strike down every living thing as I have done. He's making a covenant promise with himself, even before letting Noah in on it later on in this chapter. And it's, incredi it's an incredible promise Indeed, but I want you to look at that verse 21 again, because that's not all he says. And again, this is what gets me every time. Look what's sandwiched there in between those two statements, this phrase in the middle, which could almost be in parentheses, almost like you'd expect to see a dash before it and after. It's almost like a friendly reminder to the reader. And oh, by the way, look at it. Yahweh smelled the soothing aroma. Yahweh said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again strike down every living thing as I have done. So every time I read this account, I think to myself, well, what changed? 
What, what actually changed here in, in terms of man? In terms of mankind's spiritual condition pre-flood and post-flood? What changed from Genesis chapter 6 where we read, Then Yahweh saw that the evil of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually to God's making a covenant with himself in chapter 8 and then blessing Noah and his sons here in chapter 9 verse 1. What changed? I mean, besides the setting, the environment, There was doubtless a new landscape, a transformation of the topography, uh, the terrain upon the face of the earth. There was certainly less traffic on the highways, I'll tell you that much. Shorter lines at the amusement park. The population of the earth went from hundreds of millions of people, perhaps billions of men, women, and children, down to eight Certainly there were changes in the the environment and the setting from chapter 6 to chapter 8, but what changed about us? What changed about our souls? What changed about our relationship with our Creator? What changed with regard to humanity and what, what caused the terrifying wrath of God to be poured out on this globe in the first place? The answer is nothing. Diddly squat. Here we see the Lord acknowledging in his own heart that man whom he created, in Noah's case, favored, spared, this man whom he delivered from the wrath of the flood along with his wife uh, and their three sons and their sons' wives, that the intent or inclination or bent of man's heart was still evil from his youth. In other words, a whole new world, but the same old man. A whole new world, Same old man. Notice, Yahweh doesn't say, I will never again curse the ground because while man was evil from his youth back in Genesis chapter 6, I took care of that with the whole flood thing and started over fresh with a brand new Adam formed from the dust and, and this new Eve taken from his side. Notice he doesn't say, I will never again curse the ground because I finally found the one guy on earth who has never sinned against me but has always lived up to my perfect expectations from the get-go and therefore, I'm starting over fresh with him. I will not strike down the earth ever again. I will, I, I will never again strike down every living thing as I have done. Notice, he doesn't say, I will never again curse the ground because of man's ability to work his way back to the spiritual condition that they were in before the fall in the garden. So, therefore, I will never again strike down every living thing as I have, have done. He doesn't say any of those things. In fact, if we're being honest concerning Yahweh's perspective of sinful mankind, both pre-flood and post-flood, it almost seems that there's a doubling down on his statement from Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. Then Yahweh saw that the evil of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Chapter 8, verse 21. I will never again curse the ground because of man. For again, the intent of man's heart is present tense. Meaning, these eight people, including Noah, is evil. Rah, bad, displeasing, harmful, malignant, ungodly, wicked. It's downright evil. The intent of man's heart is evil. That's the same word used in Genesis chapter 6. Same word. 
Same word used in chapter 13 to describe the men of Sodom. From his youth. And yet, Yahweh God, who is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, says, I will never again strike down every living thing as I have done. So again, what changed then? Well, obviously, the righteous wrath of an infinitely holy God was satisfied. He was appeased to some extent. He was no longer angry. However, we'll notice in our text for today, we'll also notice in our text uh, for today as it begins to unfold that the way in God which God dealt with man had changed. Doesn't mean that he changed. Yahweh is the same yesterday, today, forevermore. But the way he involved himself in the affairs of man changed. And specifically, how he now poured out his sovereign, uh, preserving grace upon all humanity and those who would come after them. And this morning, I want to look at five ways. Five ways that God preserved not only Noah and his family in the early part of Genesis, but how he has preserved, in some aspects, all of humanity since. First, I want to look at the preservation through propagation. Okay? Our text in verse 1 says, And God blessed, poured out his divine favor, bestowed upon Noah and his sons that which they did not in any way deserve. In fact, like all of us, they actually deserve the very opposite. Uh, Nevertheless, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This is an incredible display of the amazing grace of God and something, frankly, that we haven't seen since the very beginning. Not since Genesis chapter 1, pre-fall, pre-sin entering into the world, pre-every thought and inclination of the heart of man being only evil continually from his youth even. We haven't seen such blessings since that fifth day when God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them, where God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Now, here we see it again. God blessed Noah, a new Adam in some respects, sure. But he wasn't like the Adam of Genesis chapter 1 or even Genesis chapter 2. He was a Genesis 3 Adam. Yet one who, because he still bore the image of God and belonged to God and by the grace of God, believed in the promises of God, was shown continued favor and mercy from God. Okay, it's worth mentioning again and reemphasizing over and over and over again that the entirety of God's perfect plan of redemption has its foundation and finds its fulfillment in his steadfast love and his amazing grace alone. Alone. This is all of grace. This is all of sovereign grace as we begin to see his new interactions with man unfold even in this chapter. We see it right here in these first and seventh verses. And God blessed Noah and said to his sons, uh, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. And again, as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Swarm on the earth, multiply in it. That's Genesis 1 language right there. Though they had done nothing nothing to deserve this favor from God. He still graciously allowed them to not only survive the flood, but to have wives, to be able to procreate, to have sexual relations, to be obedient to the command to be fruitful and multiply, to enjoy the many blessings of parenthood. 
while also continuing to be his representatives on earth, his image bearers, right? These four men were given a responsibility, a commission, a command, a charge. They were set apart for a specific task, namely to repopulate the globe, preserve your line, procreate, propagate, reproduce, fill the earth. That's all of grace, right? It's all of sovereign grace. Maybe even more so than, that, than on day five, considering all that we just went through, went through for the past six chapters. Proving that the glory of God's grace is best seen when placed against the darkest backdrops, those of sin and death. These eight souls were the last on the planet. Has anyone ever told you I wouldn't date you if you're the last guy on the planet? That's not fun to hear. It's like high school all over again. Well, mankind got pretty close to that for a season. Here we are down to four men. But God graciously provided wives for them. And that's not all he provided. Look at verse 2, point 2 in your outline. And the fear of you, the terror of you, will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand they are given. So not only would they be able to participate in the repopulation of the earth, the preservation of their species for generations to come, but they would do so with a great advantage. They would do so at the top of the food chain. Now, at first glance, this may look like another repetition of, pre-fall, of a pre-fall mandate. However, there's a big difference here. Okay? Namely, man will now rule over the animals by fear, through fear and terror. Whereas some have said Adam exercised dominion over them in innocence and love back in Genesis 1 and 2, here in Jep. Chapter 9, man's rule over the animal kingdom might better be described as domination. Domination. Chapter 1 and 2, have dominion over them. Rule over them. They will come to you, Adam. Name them. Use them to your advantage. But uh, you'll get along great. Okay, you'll love them. They'll love you because sin has no place here. We're talking about the garden. Now, okay, Noah. I'm giving these animals to you, but they will no longer come to you willingly as they once did, even when they came to you on the ark. That was only because I told them to do so. I caused them to do so. But those days are over. Now they will cower in your presence. They will fear you because of what I'm about to say next in verse 3. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. As with... The green plant I give all to you. Those are some of the sweetest words in all of holy rot, if you ask me. In fact, I can smell that food coming from that kitchen right now for this fellowship luncheon. That savory beef, the lamb, the chicken, the turkey, oh, the leftovers. What a great week to have this luncheon. The sweet goodness that will be laid out for us just a short time from now. May you enjoy this luncheon as another gracious gift from the Lord. Think about this verse as you're eating. As he says, every living thing shall be food for you. Important to note at this point anyhow, Yahweh doesn't make a distinction between clean and unclean animals. That will come. But for now, he tells Noah and the boys, they're all yours. They're all yours. Leading many to believe that the diet consisting of plants, seeds, uh, fruits, 
this diet was maintained uh, beyond the garden all the way up to this point in chapter 9, but I'm not so sure that's the case. I think people were eating of the sacrifices made from Genesis 3 on, but I don't know that for sure, obviously. What we do know is that right here in our verse 2, God formally expands the menu as a whole new entree section pops up like that. And he does so in order to better sustain and preserve human life. That's why he's doing it. Now, about this fear. We see this clearly even today. If an animal is not trying to attack us, which is almost always done in, in defense to protect themselves or their family, if they're not attacking us out of fear, they're usually outright frightened of us. Big or small, they're usually frightened by humans. Typically, animals don't trust us and for good reason in some cases. And if and when they ever do, it takes a lot of time to tame them. You've got to breed it into them even, literally weaning them off of their mother's teat, caring for them as little pups or cubs or babies, showing them that we don't mean them any harm. We're here to care for you. But in the wild even, they typically don't stalk the human. They're usually they're finding out how to evade the human because even though we might not, not be as strong or agile, uh, agile, they can, they can sense that we have an intellect and thought and reasoning which usually will spell their demise. Now, as Matthew Henry said, uh, the horse and ox patiently submit to the bridle and yoke. Even the sheep is dumb both before the shear and before the butcher, for the fear and dread of man are upon them. Yahweh has opened it up. He's graciously given man this freedom to enjoy this element of creation and to be preserved by it, sustained by not just plants, but now with the added benefits and proteins of body-nourishing meats. And it's a true blessing from the Lord. It's a true blessing from Yahweh. But God's provision, uh, excuse me, preservation through provision of animals certainly doesn't come without some parameters and guidelines. Okay? He says in verse 4, however... Flesh with its life, that is, its blood, you shall not eat. This is a prohibition. Yahweh says, look, you can eat these animals. You can consume them for food, but this isn't a free-for-all here. You still have to show some respect. You have to honor the sacredness of life. Yes, even animal life. You'll see why this is important in a minute here. Already you can see him setting it up. You can eat these animals, but you don't eat them while they're still alive, while their blood is still flowing, while it's still pumping through their vital organs, causing them to live. That's what this means. Have respect for life, even the lives of the ones you rule over, even though they don't have a soul like you do, Noah, even though they don't have a, a conscious awareness of their own existence and ability to comprehend their life or commune with the one who gave them life as you do, Noah, they still have life. They still have a soul even. The word is nephesh. Not an everlasting soul that will stand before God when they die. However, they are still alive within. They're still animated living creatures. They still possess what has been called a passionate vitality. They just don't have a soul like your soul. But they have life, Noah. They have passion. They have the ability to think, to show affection, to reason to some degree, and they have blood pumping through their veins just like you do. So don't be a savage. Don't be like an animal yourself. Don't abuse this liberty I've graciously given to you. First of all, you've got to wait till they're truly dead before you start to consume them. 
You can't be like the wild beasts who begin to eat their prey while their hearts are still beating, where their limbs are still kicking, trying to get away. You've got to kill them. Make sure they're dead. <clears throat> Don't eat animals with the life still in them. This sounds reasonable to me. Doesn't it to you? This is reasonable? I've seen those same videos out of China that you have with the octopus and the frogs and the snake flailing around as they're consumed leg first, legs first. Not only is that woefully unappetizing in any way, shape, or form, but beyond that, folks who eat live animals seem to be lacking any sense of common decency. It's cruel to start chowing down on something while it's still moving. Uh, cultural norms or not, that's repulsive, disgusting. Well, this goes way beyond just human decency here. Later in Leviticus, we'll see the prohibitions be given, uh, being given to preserve the health of the Israelites. You shall not eat the fat. You shall not eat the blood. Same thing in Deuteronomy 12. Moses says, you kill something, gazelle, deer out in the field, pour the blood out on the ground even before you eat it. Get it out of here. There are practical benefits to not eating blood. can't believe I have to say that from the pulpit. If you haven't guessed it by now, there are also some major spiritual implications surrounding the blood, right? The blood wasn't to be consumed with the meat, even by fire. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. Blood is what gives life to God's creatures. It's life blood, he says in Leviticus 17. He even tells the people the reasoning for this. And also, that which sets them, them apart from the heathen, from the pagan nations of the world who made common practice out of eating raw flesh and drinking the blood of their sacrifices. Leviticus 17, verse 11. Yahweh says, And I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. He says, blood is very important to me. Not only is it the source which provides all that is needed for the vital organs in the body to be sustained, not only that, but lifeblood is what I will require to have my righteous wrath appeased and for your violation of my righteous requirements to be atoned for. It acts as a covering for your sins, whether individually or corporately. The death of these animals, the Life draining out of them and splattered upon my altar is what, I, what is required to appease my righteous wrath against sin and against the sinners who commit those sins. So honor it. Don't consume it. But also understand the, the, the shedding of animal blood is just temporary. The blood of bulls and goats is not sufficient or adequate to appease my wrath forever. It's temporary. It's a picture, a symbol of the one who, who will come, the one who did come, the precious Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, whom the Father will lay on the altar of sacrifice to cover once for all time the sin of everyone who would believe. That's why he makes such a big deal about the blood, even here. That's the reason for the prohibition. It's sacred. It's sacred. Eat the meat. Don't eat the life. Eat the meat, don't eat the life. Yahweh then takes it to the next level. He essentially says, you want to know just how important life is to me? And specifically, how important your life is to me? Verse 5, Surely I will require your lifeblood from every living thing I will require. He's talking about human beings being killed here. That's what that means. 
having the lifeblood drained from their bodies. Listen, anything that sheds your blood intentionally, kills you in an act of malice, I will, I will require their blood to be spilled. In other words, I will avenge the blood of the innocent by prosecuting and punishing them, including beasts, including creeping things, whatever it may be. They kill you, they will die. But not only them, but from every man, from each man's brother, I will require the life of man. Three times, he says, he will require or demand the blood of one who sheds human blood. Three times. And his including fellow man in the company of every living thing is huge here. This is, pre, this is a pre-Mosaic ex- law example of life for life, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, bruise for bruise, or wound for wound. This is a law of God given to Noah to protect and preserve the sanctity of life, specifically human life. One commentator said, the law protects human life from human assault. If animal life is sacred, how much more human life that bears God's image? Somebody get that quote to Peter. That's right. In fact, man was just given full authority to take the life of animals. He just couldn't drink the blood. But he could kill that animal without fear of repercussion. As God says, they're mine and I give them to you. But now, Yahweh makes it crystal clear, nobody is permitted to take your life because your life doesn't belong to them. I don't give man the authority to take another human life at their discretion because unlike the animals, I made man in my image. They are mine and I'm not giving them to anyone. Right? We know this. Jesus said the same thing. God in human flesh, as he walked the earth that he spoke into existence. The disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians came to him one time trying to trap him by asking, is it lawful to give tax to Caesar or not? He said, show me the coin used for the tax. They brought him a denarius. And he said to them, whose likeness and and inscription is on this coin? And they said to him, Caesar's. Then he said, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they marveled, leaving him, they went away, because they knew what he was saying. Give Caesar his little hunk of metal back. It's got his picture on it. It bears his image, therefore it belongs to him. But then give back to God what is his, namely his people who bear his image. People who you religious hypocrites are taking full advantage of, and I know it. They marveled. They went away. Nobody has the right to take another life. Unless, of course, they're given permission to do so by the one whom all life belongs to. And that's only in certain situations. Wartime, self-defense, Exodus 22, verses 2 and 3. Capital punishment, as we see here in verse 6. This is capital punishment. It's actually poetic language. Poetic justice, right? Whoever sheds man's blood, by man uh, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. Now this is interesting to me considering what happened back in chapter 4 with Cain and Abel, remember? Cain killed his literal brother, yet God didn't command anyone to kill him. In fact, he actually protected Cain from any human retribution. Same with Lamech, remember? Cain's great-great-grandson. Remember he killed that little boy? 
I remember reading anywhere of his blood being shed as a result. Well, what's the difference? Well, again, God deals with different peoples in different dispensations, different economies. Pretty soon the law will come along. There will be all kinds of reasons given to put someone to death. But for right now, straight up. A life for a life. Lifeblood for lifeblood. And guess who God put in charge to carry out that punishment? Guess who's charged with carrying that sentence out? Those who bear his image. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, by man, his blood shall be shed. Why is this here? Why include this in the blessing of Noah and his sons? Answer, because he knew that every inclination of man's heart was still evil from his youth. He knows what kind of creatures we are, that we are a fallen, corrupted race whose affairs he will continually have to intervene in, whom he will continually have to establish guidelines for so that we don't end up in the place we were pre-flood. He did it in order to graciously preserve life and emphasize the sanctity of life for those who are made in his image. All men who are made in his image, rich or poor, black or white, healthy or sick, old or young, whether inside the womb or outside of the womb. Of course, the unborn as well. As someone once asked, how does a simple journey of seven inches down the birth canal suddenly transform the essential nature of the fetus from non-person to person? No, that's a human being made in the image of God. And no man and no woman has the authority or right to take that life because it doesn't belong to them. I'm getting ahead of myself. If you notice in the sixth verse, Yahweh institutes the first form of human government, right? To enforce laws. To carry out justice on those who violate them. In this case, God's law, which says, I will require the life of those who take the life away from my image bearer. And he will indeed make good on that promise in this life or the next. But in terms of this life, God is clear. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. One commentator said, human beings are God's agents for exacting compensation by capital punishment. They stand in God's stead as rulers. This legislation lays the foundation for government by the state. Quote, Exacting retribution is not a personal matter, but a societal obligation. Our government has an obligation to carry out capital punishment according to God's commands. This is the very basis of our submitting to their God-granted authority in the first place. Romans chapter 13. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist have been appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists that authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they, have, they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Okay? But why did he appoint uh, rulers and kings, judges, governors? For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but of evil, for evil. Do you want to have no fear of that authority? Do what is good. You will have praise from the same, for it is a minister of God to you for your good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, 
For it does not bear the sword in vain, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. This is New Testament stuff. That's why government is in place. This is why human government is in place right here. That's why we are subject ourselves to their laws, even the ones that we don't necessarily agree with. Unless they are demanding that we do something that lies in blatant contradiction to God's word, we submit to the authorities. We submit. Because they are to bear the sword of God as an avenger on the one who practices evil. Therefore, Paul says, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of that wrath, but also because of conscience. It's a conscience uh, matter as well. Now, I don't have to tell you this this morning, but I'm going to anyway. Our government, both on a national level and on a local level, in many ways get a big fat F in this regard. Why? Because they do the exact opposite of what it says. For us here in Colorado with our current governor at the helm, this could very well read, for rulers are a cause of fear for good behavior, but not for evil. Do you want to have no fear of that authority? Do what is wrong. You will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for really hard times. It's backwards. Our government officials, particularly men like Jared Polis, Gavin Newsom, Joe Biden, and many other wicked men and women in government are doing the exact opposite of what they were granted the authority to do. To bear the sword against evildoers, specifically murderers. But... These men, and men like them, are incapable of doing such a thing, for they have a debased, disqualified mind. They have the irrational mind of Romans chapter 1. They are under a great delusion where they call what is evil good and what is good evil. And they do so intentionally, ultimately because they are serving their father, the devil. And my brothers and sisters, we are not called to blindly or carelessly submit to every decree of such evil and tyrannical rulers. Now, having said that, James Boyce rightly noted that there are two errors that people tend to make in regard to human government. One is disregard for the state. It's a refusal to recognize its authority expressed in a scorn of public leaders and a flaunting of perfectly valid laws. That's what Paul is primarily dealing with here in Romans. The other error is to regard the state more highly than we ought, believing that the government will solve our problems. This is the characteristic error of American democracy, particularly at the present time. He said that 20 or 30 years ago. <laughs> oh. And that's right. Particularly at the present time. And particularly in the realm of what we've been reading about this morning, the sanctity of human life. Let me tell you how backwards, how demonic, how satanic things have been here in colorful, colorful Colorado these past few years. In the past three years, our openly Jewish yet openly homosexual governor has signed two major bills into law. On March 23rd, 2020, Colorado became the 22nd U.S. state to abolish the death penalty. 
as Governor Jared Polis signed legislation repealing the state's capital punishment statute and commuted the sentence of the state's three death row prisoners of life without possibility of parole. So this governor, and the one before him, by the way, Hickenlooper, said, you know what? It's not fair that these three guys should die so that they can say on the campaign trail, look how courageous and noble I am. Look how caring and loving I am as I stand for the sanctity of the lives of these three men who shed the blood of divine image bearers, one who killed three teenagers in Chuck E. Cheese just because he was offended that he was fired. Two girls, one boy. One girl begged him for her life. He shot her right in the face. God says the government has the, an, an obligation to kill this man. Instead, Jared Polis and his buddies come along, send out their little royal decrees saying, nah, forget that. These killers deserve to live. Look how I demonstrate my gracious respect for life as ruler of the state. Well, it wasn't even three years later. He signed another bill into law. On Monday, April 4th, 2022, Colorado Democratic Governor Jared Polis signed a bill into law that codifies the right to an abortion in the state. House Bill 1279, the Reproductive Health Equity Act, states that every individual has a fundamental right to make decisions about the individual's reproductive health care, including the fundamental right to use or refuse contraception. A pregnant individual has a fundamental right to continue a pregnancy and give birth or to have an abortion and to make decisions about how to exercise that right and a fertilized egg embryo and a fetus does not have independent or derivative rights under the laws of the state. A human being wrote that. A human being who leads a large number of other human beings actually said that and typed it out and then signed his name at the bottom of it. And what it means is this. If you leave this place right now, and you kill somebody today, multiple people even, children even, whole movie theaters full of people, you'll go to prison. But you will not have to pay with your life in the state of Colorado. However, if you are a child in the womb who has done nothing, either right or wrong, who has neither offended anybody or slandered anybody, has never stolen anything from anybody or hurt anybody or shot anybody in the face, or broken any laws, but only sat back as you were sovereignly knit together in your mother's womb by the one whom your life actually belongs to, you have taken the criminal's place on death row. You've taken his place. You, that little child in the womb, now face the death penalty. Even if you got there by rape, incest, or just all-around reckless and foolish behavior, the actual perpetrators will go on living while you take the fall. In fact, you have a governor who is encouraging women to put you to death, campaigning upon your death, and doing so all in the name of women's liberation and health care. Let me ask you, brothers and sisters, this morning, is such a man just? Ought we to blindly submit to all the decrees of such a man? No. No. I mean, what are we talking about here? <laughs> this is not just another political view. This isn't political talking points. Forget politics. We're talking about a little baby. 
a little baby, like a child. As a baby, as, as he or she is nestled in, in what is supposed to be one of the safest places, very good timing. Remember, you were nestled in that, the, what was supposed to be the safest place in all of the world. We have little babies, little human beings, little boys and girls in their, in their mom's womb right now in this room. And this man has the audacity to think that he or any of us, including the mother, has the right to shed the blood of this innocent, image-bearing child of God. Jared Polis does not have that authority. The president doesn't have that authority. The Supreme Court doesn't have that authority. Medical, profession, medical professionals do not have that authority. I don't have that authority. And you don't have the authority to make that call. Abortion is murder. Murder. Calvin said the same 400 years ago. Demonic leaders in his day as well. Quote, The fetus, though enclosed in the womb of its mother, is already a human being. And it is a monstrous crime to rob it of the life which it has not yet begun to enjoy. If it seems more horrible to kill a man in his own house than a field because a man's house is his place of most secure refuge, it ought surely to be deemed more atrocious to destroy a fetus in the womb before it has come to the light. How can we possibly argue against that? Who? Monstrous, atrocious, great words. Nevertheless, in the eyes of our Lord, to spill the blood of our brothers in the womb is just the same as spilling his blood on the outside of the womb. The same recompense will be given. If not in this life, then in the next life. If Jared Polis and all the other folks who think they have the authority to take a life do not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent his bow and prepared it, and he will pour out his righteous wrath upon their everlasting souls for all of eternity. So they better enjoy that little bit of authority that God has granted their little bitty lives during this little bit of time on this little bitty earth because they're about to get what they got coming to them. Or, even better yet, repent. Repent, Jared Polis. Recognize the true Lord over human life. Repent of your sin and bend your knee to the Lord of lords, to the King of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the good news. That's the great news. This is the great news, not only for wicked governors and presidents, not only for murderers and murder sympathizers, not only for thieves and adulterers and fornicators and drunkards and mothers who for whatever reason they think they have the authority to take a life or the husbands and boyfriends who pressure them to do so. But this is good news for all of us. All of us woefully depraved sinners. For all of us men and women who since the flood whose hearts are still bent toward evil and sin and death and murder. The good news is Yahweh the creator and sustainer of the heavens and the earth, the owner of all human life, the one who gave you your life, who sustains your life as you sit there in that chair hearing my voice this morning, 
values human life. He values your life. He values your life very much. And he has the authority to do with your life whatever he wants. Just like he did with all those millions of people back in Genesis 7. Like he, lives which he did have the right, he did have the authority to take. They were his. I mean, he was perfectly justified in doing so, whether we like it or not. But he also saved some, didn't he? He saved some. He chose to save some, to spare some, to forgive some. He promised to reconcile some to himself for all of eternity. If only a few of the men and women living at that time, even though they had done nothing to deserve such favor, he saved them by his own sovereign good pleasure. And the basis of their salvation was nothing but their faith. Faith in his promises. Faith in his person. Faith in his word. So I'm here to tell you right now that that same reconciliation is available to you if you would but hear his call through his word this morning. Hear his call and come to him. Hear his invitation to come. Come to him this morning. Place your trust in him this morning. Trust that he did indeed provide the ultimate sacrifice for sinners like us, that he did provide the lamb who takes away the sin of not only Israel, but of, of the whole world, that he, is, that, that he has and is ransoming a people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, all those who would but believe in his gospel, who would acknowledge that they have sinned against him, they are worthy of his wrath. All who would then turn from that sin, turn to their creator by faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of his perfect son, the Lord Jesus Christ who shed his blood on Calvary to make perfect, absolute atonement for all those who belong to him, all whose souls he will preserve, not only here upon earth, but for all of eternity thereafter. All who would but cry out to him for forgiveness, come to him by faith alone. Does that describe you this morning? Have you come to the Father through Jesus the Son? I pray that you have. I pray that you have. Please pray with me now as we have Noel and the music team come up and close us in musical worship. Pray for our time of fellowship as well, if you could, brother. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your infallible word. It's inspired. That's why it's such a joy, because we can take it from, from you. It's God-breathed. And we know that even in this passage, we're shown how you value life. You You value human life. You value human souls as well, so much so that you sent your one and only son into this world to die a sinner's death, that he would take the place of and bear the sin of all who would but believe in him and call upon his name for salvation. It's a joy and a privilege to do so, Lord. We know that we didn't deserve that. We don't deserve your amazing grace, but that's what makes your grace so amazing, Lord. We're so grateful for you. We're so grateful for your... Son, we're so grateful for your word. We're so grateful for your gospel. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.